once again, good morning, everyone. My name's Tim. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I am one of the pastor elders on the leadership team. And I must say that I realized this morning that any resilience that I built up in England to the cold is completely gone. Because I realized I'm freezing and it only took a few months of moving back to California, but we're all in this together. It's a beautiful morning. We're privileged to have this opportunity to worship together. Family, it's good to be with you. Those of you in the parking lot, those of you joining us online. Also, if you are exploring Christian faith, if you're not yet a Christian, you are so welcome here. We're going to do our best to show you who Jesus is and why he matters. As Chad said, we've just begun a new series called Kingdom Come looking at specific passages in the book of Acts, which records for us the earliest history of the church and where they got their power from. And we are asking the question, what would Ventura County look like if Jesus were king? And what would the church look like since Jesus is king? And each week, we're going to be asking that question as we look at specific passages from Acts with all these important themes on what the kingdom of God looks like in and through our lives. And this morning, we want to ask, what would our practices, what would our habits look like if Jesus was king? Read with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 47. I'm reading out of the NIV. Let me read the passage and we'll pray together for our time this morning. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. And now by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in this moment? Would you cause these truths to become real to our hearts Teach us why these practices are so important and how they are fueled by your love and grace. For your glory and our good, would you teach us? And for those who do not yet know you this morning, I pray that today they would. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, the American writer Mary Oliver once said, the patterns of our lives reveal us. Our habits measure us. And I think she's right. If you were to follow me around for a few weeks, it'd be a little creepy, don't do it. But if you were, and you were to see how I spend my time, my energy, my focus, you would learn what I truly love, not just what I say that I love. And what about us? What would people discover about our lives if they looked at our patterns, if they looked at our practices, if they looked at our habits? If Ventura were to look at our church, what would it reveal? The question on my mind, church, is this. Would our practice match our profession? What would they find when they look at our marriages? Are they healthy or unhealthy? What would they find when they look at our our friendships and our relationships? Are they healthy or unhealthy? What would they find as they look at our, our habits and the way in which we go about our lives? Because here's the thing, practices can reinforce things in our lives for better or for worse. But now here's the good news. Jesus Christ brings a completely new way of living, new patterns that reveal new power. And friends, there are reports of transformation happening in our own church, marriages that are being healed, friendships that are being reformed, relationships that are being mended. And this is because of what Jesus Christ is doing in our midst. And isn't that what everyone wants? especially right now. You don't need me to quote any kind of official poll to tell you that relationships and communities in this nation are more frayed than ever. Defriending, ghosting, abandoning friendships over all these different kinds of discord and division. We need a new way of living together. And friends, this is precisely what the kingdom of God brings and the effects are far-reaching. For I'm learning this, only a transformed community can transform communities. Isn't that right? Only a community that's been transformed by the power of God can be a transformational influence to the world around them. And this is what we have as a snapshot in the book of Acts chapter two, a kingdom community. And this is what Acts is all about. I love the book of Acts. It was one of the first books of the Bible that I read when I was a brand new Christian about 20 years ago. I mean, it reads like you're watching like a binge-worthy Netflix series. You're like, oh my gosh, the early church, people are getting healed and saved, and it was so good as a new Christian. I was so into it until I got to the end. The end of the book of Acts is a total cliffhanger. It just kind of ends, and you're like, wait, what happens? And I was telling one of my Christian friends who was older and more mature, I was like, wait, why does the book of Acts end? You know, like, where's season two? And he's like, Tim, you are season two. And I was like, oh my gosh, God is continuing his work today. And as we learned last week, the book of Acts began with the resurrected King Jesus declaring to his disciples that his kingdom would come through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the second chapter, we see the Spirit of God poured out on this holy Jewish day called Pentecost. And the apostle Peter, he preaches boldly 
that the problem with humanity is sin, which is attitude and action that separates from God, a problem that only Jesus, God's son, can solve. And he did this by coming to this world, becoming a man, living perfectly on our behalf, dying for our sins and rising again, offering total forgiveness and new life. This good news will change your life. And we're told in this text that it changed thousands of lives that day. Jesus became king. What should we do, they said in verse 37 in your Bibles. And Peter says, turn, repent, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. This is a promise from God. And those who accepted and received this message were added to the church. So what did it look like? Well, that's what we discover by focusing on verses 42 to 47 this morning. Remember, Dom preached last week that the kingdom coming means the gracious rule of King Jesus in and through our lives. And notice, one of the first evidences that the Holy Spirit was at work is new habits. And these practices, they change us and they help the mission go forward. Now, they may not seem spectacular, but do not underestimate their power in our daily lives. And now is a crucial time for us to examine our commitments, to examine our habits, especially in 2021. Because to follow Jesus is to be devoted to a life together, which causes us all to grow. And know this, friends, the community that takes seriously this call to devotion is a community that can flourish anywhere and endure anything. When people ask, well, how's the church going to face all the challenges of 2021? You know what I say? We're going to outlast it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This whole thing is a miracle. The church is a miracle. My changed life is a miracle. Your changed life is a miracle. We never produced it. It came from God. That's where my trust is. Through wars, through peace, through times of plenty, through times of lack, through the ups and downs, God's power is able to change us. So what would our practices look like if Jesus were king? There are four, briefly, that I want to draw your attention to today. And each one of them is important. And they all go together. So as you hear this, you, you can't cherry pick. Some people are like, oh, I love Bible studies, but I don't really want to pray or fellowship with other Christians. Like, oh, can't cherry pick. They all go together. So what are they and what do they reveal? First, in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see them learning together. We see them learning together. Verse 42, one of the first evidences that the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of these men and women, one of the first distinct rhythms for them as a community was, note, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching. They were studying the scriptures. They were studying the Bible to become a Christian is to begin a lifelong practice of learning from God's word. The church then is a community where scripture is read, it is explained, and it is applied to all. Indeed, the backbone of a healthy believer and a healthy church is biblical teaching and learning. So this does not go out the window when a time of crisis comes our way, it should become central. Why? Why do we read the Bible? Well, let me just give you a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bible reveals who God is. 
What he has done, what he's like, what he's doing, what he will do, it's all revealed in God's word. And the more we interact with scripture, the more we personally engage with who God is as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and illumines our minds to the truth. That's why in the Bible, scripture is called our food. We find our meaning in a relationship with a God who has revealed himself. And also, secondly, the Bible reveals who we are and what our needs are. We're told in Scripture the truth about humanity, speaking the truth to our truest needs, our pain, our insecurity, our guilt, our shame, our stress, our betrayal, our joy, our, our happiness, our peace, our healing. The Bible gives us true insight and instruction as to how to think about these things and what to do about them. We're told in the New Testament book of James that the Word of God is like a mirror revealing what is truly going on in our hearts. The Bible reveals who God is. The Bible reveals who we are. The Bible then strengthens our relationships. In learning together, we can support one another, be accountable to one another, encourage one another in what real community is. And the Bible gives us guidance. God's word, the book of Psalms says, is like a, a lamp to our, our path and a light for our way. God's word keeps us from being led by our own broken desires. Indeed, the most reliable guide to God's will is God's word. That's why we study together and we believe that God has given us clarity where clarity is most needed, what we need for life. Friends, part of Jesus being king, part of being a kingdom community looks like this. The spirit of God will always lead us to learn from the word of God. This is a necessary rhythm in practice. Some people say, Church, why are you guys working so hard to like make all this happen you know, on a Sunday? And for those of you joining us online, why, why, are, why do people show up in this parking lot before the sun comes up to put out all these chairs and to draw the circles and everything? Because we believe that we need to hear from the preached word of God. We need to learn together. Why do our community groups center around scripture? Because we need the word of God. Why is there a women's Bible study on Friday night, which, by the way, had 150 women last Friday night? What are they doing on a Friday? What are you doing on a Friday night? I'm going to the women's Bible study. Well, not me, but 150 other women. Why are the youth gathering? The kids' ministry. What are we doing when we gather? We're learning from the word of God. So we must ask ourselves, friends, are we devoting ourselves to God's word? This season, this year will not be wasted as we devote ourselves to learn. And as you do, your soul will be strengthened as you're saturated in the truth of God, becoming more aware of his power and presence, equipping you for every season of life. But this is no mere intellectual exercise. This leads to the second practice. They were not only learning together, they were also loving together. Notice again verse 42 where we're given the summary of the community life. We learn that relationships were not sacrificed on the altar of learning. They became the very place of their scriptural application. It says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to what? To fellowship. A word that describes a common or a shared life. Now what did they have a share in? What did all these people who came from different backgrounds, different places, different experiences... 
What do we share in this parking lot? For those of you joining us, what do we share? All of us are different. We come from different places and our own personal experience. What do we have in common? Well, the beautiful thing is this. The number one thing, friends, that we all have in common is what we've received from God. And that's an incredible thing. It means that you and I in this community, regardless of our, where we come from, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a shared life together. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus is called adopted. That's why you guys have spent the last few years going through the book of Ephesians because you had to learn that you're a kingdom kid. Before you ever do anything for God, you have to realize that you have a relationship with God. And that means that we are his family. And so we share together in the life of God, but there's also, notice, a practical element here. And it's described in the rest of the passage as you read it all the way down to verse 47. We share out of what we have practically. In verse 44 and 45, if you look down, we see that the church was giving generously to those who had need. Now, not everyone sold their property. We're told later on that some still gathered in their homes. But their generosity, what it revealed was their love. It revealed their heart posture. See, friends, the Christian community is not marked by the practice of like self-preservation, meaning that we shouldn't just show up to every church event thinking, well, what am I going to get out of it? But rather, what can I pour into this? Now, let's be honest. Many of us all do that. I'm like that at times, like, man, I've had a tough week. Like, what are these people going to, like, pour into me this week? But rather, what if our posture was showing up saying, how can I pour into the lives of these men and women? See, this is pretty radical because for so many, sharing is usually optional. Generosity is usually communicated as something optional. If you're feeling kind, go for it. Practice random acts of kindness. The only problem with that is it's random. Like, you get to pick and choose. But in the church, this is essential because we recognize that everything that we have first belongs to God. That's why we view our time and our money and our resources as stewards, not owners. Everything I have comes from God. And he loves me and he loves the people around me and therefore we ought to love one another. I love the Apostle John who was there that day in the book of Acts chapter two. Later on when he wrote his first letter found in the New Testament, he writes these words, dear children, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. This pandemic forces us to examine a lot of things. I know it certainly has for me. But one of those areas is the depth of our relationships. Will we reach out to others only in times of plenty? Or will we also reach out to others when there are great times of need? or times of adversity, or times to give and to show generosity to others around us even when it is difficult. One of the marks of the kingdom coming was that they were a loving community, practically, sacrificially supporting others. But what drove this? What was the fuel to their fire, so to speak? Well, we see their motive. We see that in the third practice. They were longing together. They're learning together, centered around scripture, loving together. They're devoted to fellowship. But thirdly, we see them longing together also in verse 42. What were they devoted to? The early church displayed their, in their practices a deep longing. For what? 
a longing for God himself. We see this in their worship. They worship together. That's what's described in verse 42 in the breaking of bread and the prayers. They had a regular pattern of worship which first included the breaking of bread, which all the commentators believe is a reference to communion. It is a reference to the Lord's Supper because this phrase is used distinctly apart from a more general meal found down in verse 46 when they ate together. They would take the remaining bread and the wine and they would engage together in a moment where they remembered what Jesus had done. The broken bread, the wine, symbols of Jesus' sacrificial death. In drinking the cup and taking the bread, we declare that Jesus died for sin and he rose again so that we could have life in his name and we're gonna celebrate that together this morning, church. They devoted themselves to continually remember the finished work of Jesus when they gathered. And another way they worshiped was through prayer. Notice it says the prayers in the original language, referencing a fixed time and pattern of praying together, just like our prayer meetings that we have in the regular rhythm of the life of our church. We have a prayer meeting on Tuesday nights at 6.30 p.m. If you can join us, this is amazing. Because like the early church, we're trying to pattern our lives around prayer because we believe in the practice and power of prayer, that we have a God who hears and that he responds for his glory and our good. What did they pray? Well, we're gonna learn more about that next week. But notice this, affection for God was at the heart of this community. I love that. Devotion. It was this shared devotion, this longing together that brought such unity and generosity. It, it wasn't religion, it was relationship. And we all know that affection drives action. Our passion drives our practice. I mean, think about it for, for a moment. When we talk about longing, this is how we're made. We are creatures of affection. Whatever fills our schedules will stir up our affections. It's how we communicate with one another. I mean, think about all the commercials you watch. Think about all the advertisements you see. They never just say, hey, do you want a very high interest rate credit card? Take this one. No, it doesn't say that. What do the commercials do? They, they show like a family reunion on a private island. It costs like a million dollars. And like everyone's weeping. The cousins are like, I've never met you. And it's like this moment priceless. But to pay for the island is going to cost you like $25,000 at a 39.5% APR interest rate. Like they're not just going to say that. What are they doing? They're appealing to your affections. Like even shampoo commercials. Can we talk about this? It's actually insane. It's like, if you want to overcome adversity in your life, add nutrients to your hair. And you're like, yes, the nutrients. And I will be new. What's happening? They're stirring up our affections because we are created like that. We're designed to put something central and build our lives around it. Or to put it this way, everybody worships. We might say, well, you're a Christian. Of course you say that. But take the words of an atheist. His name is David Foster Wallace. He died some years ago, tragically, but he was a great novelist and author. And at one of his college commencement speeches, he made this statement. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Friends, our hearts are like a giant canyon and nothing short of union with God, the God who made us, can ever fill that void. And we as the church are a people who are unapologetic that no one can meet our deepest longings. But God, isn't this what we're doing when we're singing in worship? We're declaring to the people around us and to one another when we say, Jesus, you are everything. We're saying nothing else in this world. No paycheck, no job, no change in my circumstance, though those things might be good, can ever fill the deepest need of my heart. Only you, Jesus. Only you. We declare our worship for him, not because he needs it, but because he's worthy of it. Our hearts find their home as we set them upon him. This longing is the fruit of the kingdom coming in our lives. So friends, listen. The goal is not just like fill your calendar with church things. Like when you listen to the announcement, you're like, okay, Bible study, giving, like, you know, we all often do. But think of it like this. These are all things that stir up our affection for Jesus. These are all things that stir up my affection for Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. Whatever matters most to you, you're gonna make it known to others. If you're like me, when I get excited about something, I can't help but to talk about it. And that leads to the fourth practice here. They were leading together leading other people to Jesus. Verse 43 through 47. The final practice which marked the church was their infectious sharing of the gospel. And it says in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice as they were living for Jesus, they were leading people to Jesus. Their worship of God resulted in leading others to God. Their trust in Jesus led others to trust in Jesus. The result, I love this picture, was like this magnetic force that the author Luke of the book of Acts calls having the goodwill of all the people. They all went around being natural evangelists. They went everywhere sharing good news. How could they not? Our public commitment to these practices results in a public witness to those around us. And I love this picture because it's all naturally balanced. There's formal and informal. They're gathering in the temple and also from house to house, corporate environments, personal environments, public and personal. It's all connected. These are all ways in which the kingdom moves in our lives. These are practices that the risen King Jesus calls us to embrace. Now, as we think about these things, some of you might be asking the question, well, I've never began. I've never even started this. I'm not even worthy of this. How can I begin? Others, you might be thinking, I know these things, but I just feel like I've drifted or I feel like I'm drifting. For some of you, you're like, I know this, but I want to make sure that I, that I remain in this. How can we keep going? How do we begin? Well, church, hear this. To become a Christian is not merely about changing your habits. The practices by themselves are not the source of power. See, like in my house, I can turn on a switch, but I don't provide the electricity to bring light to my house. I can turn on the tap, but I don't provide the source of water. 
There won't be electricity or water without somebody else providing it. And the same way with our practices, this kind of transformation is only possible because God is present and he is powerful and he is able to change our hearts and our minds. Look, they did all this, notice in verse 46 through 47, with glad and generous hearts praising God. Do you see this? What was the fuel for them? Why were they doing this? Is it because they were just super religious, disciplined people? No, they were delighting in God. They were just overjoyed, like, Jesus, you love me. This is amazing. I want to embrace these practices because of how great your love is for me. And why did they delight in God? Because God delighted in them. Because they knew that God delighted in them. And that is how this radical change happened. Friends, to be a Christian is to delight in God because you know that he delights in you. See, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ has earned you a place with God where all of us have failed to devote ourselves rightly. Jesus lived perfectly on our behalf. He came with total devotion to those of us who were devoted to total other things. Why? Because of his great love for us. And when he died on the cross, he died in our place for our sin so that we can be brought into relationship with him by grace. And it is his devotion to us that fuels our devotion to him and to others. Only his love, only his grace and acceptance can give your hearts true gladness and joy. To be a Christian is not merely about changing your patterns. It's having Jesus at the center, which then reshapes all your patterns. And we call them patterns of grace because they're not about earning life from God. They're about enjoying life with God, right? We don't just show up like, God, I showed up to church, and he's like, well, okay, well, okay, I suppose. Suppose I'll let you in. No, no, no. These are ways in which we enjoy life with God. All of these practices are empowered by God, and they enable you to grow in relationship with him and each other and impact the world. We are called to be devoted, but it's all because of Christ's devotion to us. That is the good news of Jesus. For those of you who do not yet know him, I invite you right now to put your faith and your trust in him. And church, this is what we center on, amen? amen? Heavenly Father, right now as we pray, we remember what you have done for us. We remember your devotion when you went to the cross. We remember your love today We remember your grace. And now in this moment, for those of us who feel like we've drifted, Lord, I thank you that the cross is the way back for us all. Your love calls to us. We remember that we don't embrace these things to earn your favor, but to enjoy the favor that you have already given through your son, Jesus Christ. And you want us to enjoy you. You want us to grow. You want us to be transformed for your kingdom to come in our lives. And so we receive. And now, Father, as we together, those of us in this parking lot, those who are joining us online, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
pray that you would take these truths and that they would sink down to the bottom of our hearts and change us from the inside out. May your spirit move now as we remember what Jesus has done for us. And friends, as we are in a posture of prayer, first I invite you, whether you're here in the parking lot or you're joining us online, if you do not yet know Jesus, if you want to know this morning that your sins are forgiven, if you want to know that you are accepted by God for all eternity and that you will not be eternally separated from him in hell forever, and you want to know that you will experience his love and peace into eternity, I invite you right now to say, Jesus, save me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you have done. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose again for me to forgive me of my sins. I invite you to do that now. And church, in this moment, before we begin to sing, I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's letter to the church. We're going to take communion together. And as we do, I want to remind us that this is one of the practices that Jesus commands for us. Why? So that we can remember what we so easily forget that his body was broken for us, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and for our transformation. And to remember this morning, friends, that nothing can change that. For those of you right now who feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel far off, you feel like, oh, I can't come to God or I don't know if he can forgive me, my sins are so bad. Friends, you need to know this. Because of the cross, Jesus doesn't say, I might forgive you. Because of the cross, Jesus doesn't say, I will eventually forgive you. Because of the cross, Jesus doesn't say, I will partially forgive you. He says, you are forgiven. That's how finished the work of Jesus is. And so in the same way right now that we will receive this bread and this cup, by faith in your heart, you receive his forgiveness. And you can take that communion cup in the basket in front of you right now you can remove that clear piece of film on the top and in it you will find the bread those of you who are online if you've grabbed the bread and the cup I invite you to take the bread in your hand whether you're alone or with other people you grab the piece of bread and hear these words friends as we prepare to partake and I want to say this, if you've just received Jesus right now and you're in this parking lot, if you're watching online, somebody sent you a YouTube link, you're like, why am I watching this? And now you're like, oh, this is why I'm watching it because God wants to save me. <laughs> if you've received Jesus right now, this can be your first act as a new Christian saying, I believe this. And if your faith is, and trust is in Jesus, I invite you to take this bread and hear these words. The Apostle Paul says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after the supper saying, 
This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I invite you now to take the bread and eat. This is Christ's body broken for you. And as you remove the next lid, I invite you to drink. Remembering this represents Christ's blood shed for you. And in the same way we've just received the bread and the cup, friends, by faith we receive the forgiveness and newness. We're given a clean heart and a fresh start. Amen? Amen. And now we can celebrate communion and worship with a smile on our face because it says in that text that Jesus Christ is coming again and he's going to make all things new. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, but we do this announcing to the world that Jesus is alive and he's going to come in and he's going to make everything right. So let's express our longing and focus our attention on him now as we sing and as we worship. Amen. Amen.